This is episode 104 of Huddle Up with Matias Bueno. Today's guest is senior reporter for the Jacksonville Jaguars, J.P. Shadrick. J.P. and I talk about the Jaguars' moves in free agency, as well as some of his experiences throughout his career since graduating from the University of Alabama. So sit back and enjoy today's episode. But first, a word from our sponsor. If you're like most people, you strive to eat healthy as much as you can, but it gets really difficult when life gets in the way. We get busy, we're running around doing lots of things. It's hard. Being able to eat healthy on the go is super important more than ever now. And that's why I'm here to tell you about G2G Protein Bars. They're the best protein bar for eating healthy on the go. It's made with all natural ingredients. They're fresh. It tastes like homemade, but it's even better. G2G Bars have 18 grams of protein and are gluten-free. With eight different flavors, there's so many different things that you can enjoy about the great tastes of G2G Bars and what they have to offer. They're fresh, healthy, and delicious. Make sure to get yours at g2gbar.ca or at your local retailer in Canada or the U.S. Welcome to Huddle Up with Matias Bueno. Sit back and enjoy stories and insight from sports icons from all over. Welcome to Huddle Up with Matias Bueno. Today, we are back in Jacksonville, down in Duval County. Joining the show today is senior reporter for the Jaguars, as well as one of the hosts of the Jaguars Radio Network's many shows, J.P. Shadrick. J.P., thanks for joining me today. I'm really excited to talk Jaguars football with you. Hey, Matias, thanks for having me, man. It's, it's great to be with you. Thanks for asking. And we've got a lot going on down here. Free agency is open and the Jaguars are spending money and uh, trying to get this thing right. And a new head coach and a fun time to be, be around the Jaguars organization for sure. The Jaguars spent no time getting free agency crazy in the front office. They made several signings and some people have scratch your head and are uncertain about as to why they've signed certain players or the contracts. But at the end of the day, I think one of the principles that it comes down to is the fact that they need to bolster the talent on the offensive side of the ball, especially around Trevor Lawrence and some of the free agent acquisitions they've made will do just that on offense primarily. Yeah, no doubt. Christian Kirk's the number one. I mean, he was, he was the guy they needed some weapons for Trevor Lawrence to throw to and, you know, there's been a little criticism online and on Twitter, if you're into that, about the, the money that they gave him. Uh, it's $37 million guaranteed. That's a lot of money for a guy who's never had a 1,000-yard season in his career. At least that's the criticism of it. But his uh, they're, they're confident he's able to play more than just the slot. They can move him around all over the offense. That's the idea for Doug Peterson, that they have interchangeable parts at wide receiver. They love his skill set, what he can bring to the table, his speed. Um, and so they went out and, and pointed him out in free agency and said, hey, we need to get this kind of guy in our offense with Trevor. Uh, that's just one addition. Of course, Zay Jones has that speed and ability down the field, they hope. Um, another guy from the Raiders who's had really had to fight through it the last uh, couple stops. He's been in a couple places in his career. And then uh, you go get a tight end and Evan Ingram. One year, prove it kind of deal. Uh, he's battled through a bunch of different quarterbacks of the New York Giants, and now he's settling in, hopefully, at least with Trevor Lawrence. And he's not just an off-the-hip-of-the-tackle tight end. He can line up in the slot and do some things. It gives you some options with the guys you have here already at wide receiver, at least to start with. And I would expect uh, that it, when when draft time comes, I think they'll bolster that room even more with a rookie coming in. So uh, the work's not done, but it was a big piece because – Let's face it, they dropped a bunch of footballs last year. It was not uh, the best overall performance from the wide receiver room in terms of route running, and it was just inconsistent play. Uh, they need to fix that, and they've made a good first step, in my opinion. Absolutely. You mentioned some of the acquisitions that they made in terms of the receiving core as well. Brandon Scherf, another important signing on the offensive yeah. line that was a group that's was inconsistent. They were great at times and other times they were not so good. And it was just difficult for Trevor Lawrence to really shine when the offensive line wasn't playing in a consistent manner, especially down the stretch when there were some close games that that would have made a big difference for them to grab a few more wins. Maybe it wouldn't have been the difference between making the playoffs and not, 
But at the same time, Andrew Norwell was in a contract year and he started to really shoot up and do great. Jawan Taylor had some good games, had some not so good games. There's been questions surrounding him. And Cam Robinson was tagged as the franchise guy. So really interesting to see how this offensive line group is going to pan out in 2022. I agree with you. And, you know, the last three years, they've had the same starting offensive line, at least at the start of the season, which is really tough to do in the NFL. Now, how many wins did that get them? Not many. It's not like they've been great. And a lot of times some of the starters have been injured. Brandon Linder has been banged up a little bit over the years, you know, trying to figure that out. So, yeah, you're right on Cam Robinson. They franchised him. And um, Trent Baalke, the general manager, just yesterday on Tuesday, I was I'm, I'm losing track of my days. On Wednesday, he spoke with the media at the start of the league year and said, hey, we're working on, on trying to get a long-term deal with Cam Robinson. They believe in that. Um, they they like what he can bring, and maybe with some different coaching around him can up his ability even more at, at left tackle. There's still a question at left guard. Andrew Norwell's out the door. He's with Washington now. He just signed on Thursday. So what's going to happen there? Do you, do you move Ben Barch to the left side? Do you put Walker Little in there at guard for a little bit, see what happens? They're still confident in the right tackle. Jawan Taylor, Balky said that on Wednesday as well maybe a little different coaching style, something could help him get him going. He was inconsistent, a lot of penalties, false starts, that kind of thing as the year went on. And you got Sheriff now at the right guard. And in seven years, five Pro Bowls, he was a first-team All-Pro two years ago. He's a culture-building guy. That's what Doug Peterson said he wants to have, a guy who has played at that high level, who's been to Pro Bowls, who knows what it's supposed to feel and look like. And then the next question is what happens with Linder? Nine and a half million dollars due to him this year. There's no dead cap money. So if they cut him, they're off the hook. So if they're looking for cap space, that was the big thought the other day. Maybe they cut him at the same time Miles Jack was going to go. But now word that they're still trying to work through some things, see if they can figure it out with Linder, because when he's healthy, he's, I think, one of the top third centers in the league. So, okay, uh, there you have it. So you bring in Sheriff to some of the guys you already have uh maybe you draft an interior lineman you know mid rounds to go with that and that's where they are on the offensive line at least on march 17th when we record this that's a great point you mentioned about how the jaguars were able to have a starting offensive line consistently and again didn't really result in a whole lot of plus wins but brandon linder has been great when he's healthy but the toughest thing like you said he's not always been there in the starting lineup. And he is one of the the most tenured offensive linemen on the team right now. So he does provide a lot of veteran leadership, but at the same time, if he's not in the lineup consistently, then it creates difficult matchups. And also you want to make sure you're protecting Trevor Lawrence. Ben Bart stepped in and did very well last year. Walk a little has been diverse on both sides of the offensive line, but the more they can fortify that consistency, the better they'll be. Defense has been and something one, that one, one and one I left out. Sorry to interrupt you. It was oh, Tyler Shatley. Shatley's been the backup guy here for like eight years now, right? That is and true. he's Tyler played Shatley. a lot of starts at center and at guard. He's your swing guy, and they've already re-signed him too. So, you know, that's the that's the security blanket just in case things go wrong with Linder, one of the guards. He's still here, and that's a good thing. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, no worries. If Tyler Shatley again, we can't forget him. He has been quietly doing well as a backup and filling in there was similar to the likes of when Will Richardson was bouncing around at guard at tackle and it had to be very versatile. So Tyler Shatley has filled a, a very important role on the Jaguars offensive line. And when we look at that defense, you mentioned miles Jack being released immediately signing with the Pittsburgh Steelers, Mike Tomlin calling him on the phone the other day and saying they want to help him be a part of a championship defense. So another former Jaguar linebacker, as well as Joe Schobert, who went there last year on their way to the steel to steel town, but I'm really curious as to what your thoughts are on the free agent acquisitions they've made on defense. You see that they boosted their front seven and Jack was released. Was it a move that will really help build a strong culture on the defense or are they looking to go a little bit younger with this, with these moves? Well, I mean, miles Jack was 26 years old. That's pretty young, right? So in terms of age, um, if you're looking at just the number, uh, maybe they're about as young as they were. Now, the wear on the knees might be part of the issue, but the, the biggest thing I think was 
okay, you could save eight and a half million dollars by getting out of Miles Jack. There's a little dead money on it, but at the end of the day, it's about eight and a half that you save against the cap. And you know, if you if you buy a new house, Matthias, right? You you don't just move in a lot of times and you know uh, use the same carpet that the previous owner had. Like you want to put your own touches on this house, right? New carpet, paint the walls in the kitchen, you know, um, do something like that. Uh, it's kind of the feel, right? Miles Jack's been around here. They had one good year in 2017. And this group did not draft Miles Jack. They didn't extend Miles Jack. And maybe they kind of want to get their own uh, stamp, let's say, on, on the organization and, and just go ahead and move on from everything in the past. Are they better without Miles Jack? I don't know about that. He's still a good player, and I think he'll thrive in Pittsburgh in that defense. That's just how he's going to be. Um, but they did get the league's leading tackler coming in and, and Foye Aluokan. So that's a good step in the right direction. Can he handle it for the long term? You know, as the years go along, he's a sixth-round pick. He's kind of built his way into that as the years have gone in Atlanta. Um, why not? They think so. So, and he's sounded very confident today at the podium and, and he's going to be a good piece in that locker room for sure. And then you mentioned, uh, you know, up front, they got a guy at every level on defense, right? So up front it's uh, a fully Fatakasi and he was at the podium on Thursday too. And, and an impressive guy, same idea, right? Though he was a six round guy, this rookie year played one game. He was the inactive guy. So it, a lot of those guys may not stick after year one, but he's built his way and he found a niche in New York with the jets as a run stopper and just kept improving. And it got him a big contract. And, you know, the Jags could use some added run defense in this division, especially with, with Derek Henry and Jonathan Taylor in, in Indianapolis and Henry, of course, in Tennessee. And then on the back end, we haven't heard from Darius Williams yet. He's scheduled to come in to the stadium on Friday and sign his contract. But I love this story. I mean, this is, this is a guy who, is from right here in Jacksonville, just down the street, about 15 miles away. Went to high school here. Was at uh, Alabama Birmingham when the when the program disbanded. They stopped football. He had to come back to Jacksonville and hung out and was working. Went to a junior college here and took classes. Worked at like a hardware store, doing deliveries. And then the program came back a year later at UAB, and he was like, you know what, I'm going to go back to Birmingham. They 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 gave him his deal back and. Uh, finished school undrafted with, uh, I believe the Ravens and then was cut or was cut there, claimed on waivers by the Rams. And then all of a sudden, three years later, he's starting opposite Jalen Ramsey and everybody's getting a lot of action, right? So I love those kind of stories. And that's what we're talking about with the culture. It's like that story, Fadakasi was a, a captain in New York. Of course, in Atlanta, uh, Aluakan was a, a captain for the Falcons, guys who know what leadership is and they've done it on different teams and maybe they can bring that around here. What are your initial thoughts on Doug Peterson being a part of this organization now as the head coach? He has lots of experience and you mentioned the stories that build towards a more positive culture. So where does Coach Peterson now fit in with this Jaguars team in terms of their identity? Well, I think he at least... Well, Trevor Lawrence is the face of the team. Let's put it that way, right? Uh, the players are usually the face. They should be the face of the organization. That was not the case, I don't think, uh, in many moments last season. That has changed now. So it's back the way it should be. Trevor is the face. You build around that guy. The players go make the plays and win football games. But the scheme does matter, right? You can out-scheme some, but you still have to have really good players to do it. I think where Doug Peterson comes in, where, where his – real strength will be in building a team in an organization is just his track record in all levels of an organization. The guy was a backup quarterback to two hall of fame quarterbacks, Dan Marino and Brett Favre. If you can hang with those guys as the backup for however long his career was 13 years, 14 years, uh, and kind of, you know, chop it up with those guys and, and keep up with them on and off the field. Okay, that, that gives you a little street cred, if you will. If you're going into a locker room, you've played, you've done it, you know what it's supposed to be like as a player, you understand that point of view. That's one thing. And then, of all things, he coached at a high school for three years, right? So you got to have to work with what you have as a high school coach. You can't just go recruit players 
you got to figure out and scheme it up around it. And don't underestimate what those three years did for him. Okay. I give different ideas on how to put a guy in a right position who may not have everything we need, but this is the personnel we have. Right. Okay. And then he works his way up the Andy Reed tree as an assistant in Philadelphia, goes to Kansas city, moves up the ranks. And of course, wins the Super Bowl with Nick Foles as the quarterback of all people in Philadelphia. So he's got it at all levels, uh, you know, as a player, as an assistant coach, has a Super Bowl ring as a head coach. That gives you a lot of credibility when you're uh, talking to players in the locker room, in front of the room. Uh, I think that's where that's where Doug Peterson's real strength is, at least so far, the, the month and a half, two months he's been here. And you mentioned how being the face of the franchise should really be a, a position for players Last year, surrounding the Jaguars organization, there was a lot of confusion as time went on with what was going on behind the scenes, and there was a lot of uncertainty. And now that Doug Peterson has stepped into the role of head coach, I think that it seems to be a little more stable, at least structurally, and as far as player personnel goes. Lawrence was brilliant in the last game against the Colts. And there was, again, like you talked about, if if people pay attention to chatter on Twitter, about Lawrence not doing really well, but Lawrence, I think did better than people would have expected of someone in the position that he was in. And you really saw his flashes of brilliance come to shine in that final game in week 18 against the Colts at home in Jacksonville. What were some of the progressions that you saw from Trevor Lawrence in terms of his offensive talent in the last half of the 2021 season? Well, I'm about to steal a line from Malik Jackson in the 2017 postseason, when he said, Blake Bortles is a dog, leave him alone. Well, Trevor Lawrence is a dog, right? I mean, this guy can play. He has the command of that locker room, I think. I haven't been in there, obviously. I'm not a player, but um, it, it feels like he has the respect, I think, of that locker room. They know what he can be. They know what he's trying to be. They know what his, his future means for the organization and the players that are in the organization, too. I guess it went along. It was just such a tough grind and, and tough to judge because things were changing so much. Uh, there were moments where they went to a little bit more of the read option, and he feel, it looked like he was a little comfortable in that kind of midseason, right? He would run, you know, run off that some, don't want to do that too much. Then they got away from it again. Like, they didn't do that for a while. And him standing back there patting the ball every time is fine because, yeah, he's really good when he can see that and he has guys running the proper routes, but that wasn't happening sometimes. So they they just – it was just a, a lot of a lot of cooks in the kitchen on the offense last year and cooking different things, right? So they, it just never really felt like it was coming together. But – the positive thing about Trevor is that he battles through that. Like, you know what? We're going to go out. We're going to play. And I think the week 18 game that you mentioned against the Colts was just a great idea of that. Hey, we don't stand a chance in this game, according to everybody else. But in this locker room, we have the best chance of all. Let's just go wreck the Colts and finish strong and uh, move on from there. And I think that's that's one of his great strengths is that he can kind of rally in in tough times and figure out a way because he has the arm talent. He has the head on his shoulders to do that. Now, once you get better players around him, some better weapons, uh, a consistent offensive plan that, that plays to the strengths, both, you know, through the air and maybe in the run game with him a little bit. I think that's when he'll really start to shine. So lay off Trevor. He's just fine. Everybody. He's going to be great. In that game against the Colts, that touchdown passing through to Marvin Jones was replay worthy over a thousand times so there were some players that did step up and give trevor lawrence a little bit more help mind you it wasn't a consistent effort unfortunately through the whole season as marvin jones wasn't over a thousand yards and james robinson that was a a whole another issue but the past is the past and 2022 the jaguars are looking forward to dispelling some of the myths that are surrounding the team in terms of their offensive production who are some of the of the key players surrounding Trevor Lawrence that you expect to shine and be X factors leading up to the season in September? Well, let's see what uh, Travis Etienne has in the tank. I mean, I talked to him the other week here. The, the running back, of course, missed last season. He had the Liz Frank injury in the preseason. Uh, it's just an unknown. 
but he's confident. He said he's ahead, ahead of schedule. He's starting to do some football cutting move things, whatever that means, right? So he's not going to be too specific on that with me, but he was, you know, um, happy. And, and, and I think very happy with where he is. So that's a good sign. Can he bring something out of the backfield? I uh, don't know about James Robinson. You know, that was a significant injury. Um, and the last time I saw him, he had a boot on still. That, that that Achilles tear, that's that's a tough one, right? So we'll see what he's doing. They said, hey, we're going to look in the draft, maybe do something like that. I, would, I wouldn't expect that first couple rounds. I would expect that a little, little later. Um, you know, Marvin Jones was a pretty consistent player. You know, you knew what you were going to get from him. He's not going to burn anybody. He's going to make it. He's made a catch in like 120 straight games or something ridiculous. Um, so he's going to get the football. He's going to catch the football for the most part. And that was reliable. Good. It's great. Um, I think if he's around doing that again, that's not a bad thing for an offense trying to figure out how to move the ball down the field. Got to get more out of LaVisca Chenault. Drop the ball a bunch. Uh, you know, he can run over people. He's hard to bring down. I don't remember him running past people that often. And that's part of his game. That's fine. So how do you work with that? How do you figure something out, a role for him? Or is that something you use as a chip for something else uh, later in the offseason? I think we, we're still kind of early in the game for that. Uh, and some of the guys you brought in, you, you paid Christian Kirk. You better get the football a lot. So he better be an X factor, right? I mean, you're paying him $37 million. Uh, he's going to get a lot of looks in this offense. Uh, and Zay Jones also. I think they're both going to be big pieces. And that's, that's a, you know, that's the hard part. We haven't seen anything on the field yet. Like, we haven't seen them run out there. Like, we don't know what they're going to really – and we may not know until – Week one, really, because what are we going to see in the Hall of Fame game? Backups, right? And then the three other preseason games, they're going to try to figure out who's on the roster. So you may not see the full offense. It's just kind of how it is. The defense was, I would say, probably the more consistent group in terms of their production last year. Mind you, there were some games where they played with their hair on fire, and there was games where they looked like they forgot how to tackle. But the defense is probably going to be at least going into 2022 stronger or maybe have higher expectations, I guess I should say, than the offense because of Trevor Lawrence being left for dead a lot of times. What do you think is the position group on defense that will need the most improvements or that you want to see more improvement out of this season? Oh, secondary and the pass rush. I mean, they, they couldn't get home. Um. They'll say it's the run game. They're going to stop the run. That's priority number one, and I agree with that. But in passing situations, you got to be able to get home, and they have not been able to do that. Josh Allen has not put up those kind of numbers recently. They haven't had help much from anything else uh, on a consistent basis. Uh, Caleb on chase on kind of MIA in the last year or so. What's his role? What's he going to be? Uh, Aiden Hutchinson would look pretty good in teal, I think, in that role. You know, as this offseason goes, we'll see that what happens in a month and a half from now in the draft. But then the, the, the secondary, the corners, I mean, they were so beat up last year. The secondary as a whole, you couldn't really get a feel, right? I mean, Shaq Griffin's out there. They got, they got guys who were drafted to be return specialists playing and starting at cornerback on the outside, Chris Claybrooks, right? That's not ideal, and no offense to Chris, it's just not. That wasn't what the the idea was when he came in as a Jaguar a couple of years ago. Um, so they they're rebooting that room. I mean, they got Tyson Campbell who's out there and and played well in in moments last year, and I think they like his future and his uh, physique and everything he brings to the position. His mindset, he understands the the game as a whole and the way he grew up in the game, the sport, and the and the position. I think helps him a lot when it comes to the mindset and being ready for a football game. And then you got the the guy that's coming in now, Darius Williams, on the other side. So I think cornerback position is going to be very much improved. Is Rayshon Jenkins back from? He had a broken ankle, bad one. Uh, is he going to be ready to go? Maybe. And then Andre Cisco finally got playing time late in the season. So uh, we need a little more consistency, but 
they were just so beat up. It was hard to tell. And then the pass rush couldn't get home. So that was a recipe for disaster because if they can run the ball and throw the ball on you, it doesn't really matter how much you score or don't score on offense. Yeah, that's a great point. And Cisco, the situation surrounding his playing time and Urban Meyer not really being able to keep track of him getting on the field was also a bit of a confusing debacle. So hopefully Cisco will be seeing the field more in 2022. Tyson Campbell was phenomenal towards the end of the season. He did great, especially in the game against the Colts. And if they can play like they did against the Colts and contain Jonathan Taylor and be really gritty when it comes to those short yardage stops, then they can make a lot of noise in the AFC South, especially when you consider what's happened in the other with the other teams. The uncertainty of Deshaun Watson continues in Houston. Tannehill is at the helm for the Titans, and we saw that that didn't really pan out the way that they would have liked against the Bengals in the wild card. And you look at Indianapolis, Carson Wentz is shipped out of town, and now they have two quarterbacks who have maybe a handful of games experience between them. You know, I went to the combine a couple of weeks ago, and I got there late. Um, I missed Doug and and uh, Trent Balky talking early in the week. I got there on Thursday night late, and I, I get off the airplane in Indy, and I get in an Uber, and I'm going downtown to the hotel. And the Uber driver sees the Jaguar head that's on my shirt, and first thing is like, "You guys ripped us to shreds in Week 18." Or something to that effect. I'm like, yeah, that's what we do, man. And we just, we, we wreck dreams, right? But no, I think it got in their whole, they were so tight going into that game, just talking to people around that organization in Indy that week. And I mean, they were tight going in. And then the Jaguars go out there and, and rip them to shreds, really, and screwed their whole postseason dreams up. It got in the owner's head, obviously. There was that big meeting that they had right after they got back from the trip. They sat there for hours on end talking about everything else. And, you know, Carson played terrible in the game. Carson Wentz, two turnovers, interception, fumble, couldn't do anything. So, I, uh, you know, it, it was kind of building to that anyway. But that was the cherry on top for, hey, we got to make some significant changes. Quarterback, I think it all happened at least was finalized on that week 18 game. And in, in many ways that, that I think probably sent Carson Wentz packing. That was probably the the deciding factor at that point. Now what's going to happen in Houston. I don't know. They're, they've got a lot of other issues too. I mean, yes, Deshaun Watson's been in the back of their mind for a while, but that's a long build. It's not like they're going to get good in a hurry. It feels like at least, I mean, they, they've got a lot of other issues down there too. Tennessee can still run the football, and if you got Derrick Henry back there at full go, which he wasn't second half of the season, but when he's out there, um, we've had our history and not a good one against him. So you always have a chance you can run the ball, and if even if the other team knows you're going to run the ball and you can still run the ball, uh, it feels like that's a Tennessee team that can can do some things because of that and then throw off that. They have some talent on the outside. The AFC South is still up for grabs, especially considering the Titans. They've, they've, I think, still think that they're probably the team to beat in the AFC South. I wouldn't really hand it to anyone else. But in terms of quarterback play, the Jaguars might be in the driver's seat, frankly, and that will pay dividends in the long term. Maybe we might not, might not see it this season, but to not have strong quarterbacking in the division in the long term can uh, definitely create some murky situations for teams. If contract years are looming, especially when you look at the Tennessee Titans, what would they do a quarterback extend Tannehill or let him walk? And if they do one way or the other, then that again, leaves a lot of uncertainty with those teams. Life comes at you fast in the NFL, right? I mean, just a few years ago, Watson was rolling in Houston, Andrew Lux and Indy, um, Tennessee was, you know, trying to figure some things. They had some some guys there. Mariota was there, right? Okay, they felt like he was the guy. It didn't work out. And the Jaguars didn't really have the guy. They had Blake Bortles and paid him, and they couldn't figure it out. And there's changes, and here comes Gardner Minshew and Nick Foles. And they, well, now it's the the tables have turned. Um, the Jaguars have the guy, and everybody else is trying to scramble and figure it out. So um, it's a good position to be in. At least you have that, um, but 
like we were saying last season, you better not mess that up because that guy doesn't come around too, too often. The, the Colts are one of the few places that they had back to back in Peyton and, and then an Andrew Luck. That, that's, a, that's a rarity. And then they messed up Andrew Luck because they couldn't protect the guy. So it's a good it's a good place to be, but you still have to capitalize on it, right? It, it doesn't mean you, you're going to go win games because you have the guy on the roster. Like you got to build around it and continue to get better and better with every move you make, and that's where they are right now, just in get better mode. And it might be a year, it might be a couple years, but you know you got to use those years that you have the quarterback wisely. Absolutely, and you talk about using players efficiently, and that brings us to the great enshrinement that has finally come down upon the Jaguars, Tony Baselli being inducted into the hall of fame. And though his career with Jacksonville wasn't decades and decades, he still put out amazing seasons year in and year out. And he's been waiting a long time and he finally has been inducted into Canton. What is it? What, what does this mean to the organization? And what were your thoughts when you saw Tony Baselli had finally made his way to the Pro Football Hall of Fame? I mean, my thoughts were, thank goodness, that uh, we don't have to hear about this anymore from him. But then I thought, oh, gosh, we're really going to hear about it from him now. Like, I mean, it's it's going to be nonstop. And I, I kid some. He's um, just seeing him and his family and the disappointment the last few years when you know, he's been in the room, they've been talking about him, and he makes it to the 10 from 15 to 10. That's a big step in the room. You don't really know that until after the fact, but he had known the previous years that he was really close, and the, the discussion has always been the longest around him in the last few years. And they, and they actually time how long the discussion of each player is, and they put that out later. His, his is always like right there first or second because it's such a it's a conversation point that uh, a lot of people might not agree with. It's just his, his length of play in the NFL. Uh, but there were a few guys that went in uh, a couple years ago that played fewer games than him. Uh, easily one of those, a safety. And I think that helped his candidacy a lot. And then once the, the offensive lineman got in the last few years, there was a log jam of guys who had played a long time on some winning franchises, had won Super Bowls. Once those guys got in, well, Tony's kind of the next guy, and there's not a lot of slam-dunk first ballot guys this year. This was the prime year to do it, and it got done. He, he's in, and uh, they're over-the-top excited. I, I, just seeing him, uh, his reaction to it, and seeing the city's reaction to it is pretty incredible. I mean, he, he draws attention when he walks in a place anyway because of his size and who he is in this town. Now it's a different level. I mean, I heard he walked out to the golf tournament the other day, TPC Sawgrass, the players, and it was that. Like, everybody's wishing him well, yelling at him, the whole thing. And he deserves every bit of it. And I can't wait to get to Canton in August. We're playing in the Hall of Fame game and then the enshrinement's on Saturday. And this is going to be a weekend I don't think any of us will ever forget. And it's been a long time coming. And now that we've finally put to rest the debate of should Tony be in the Hall of Fame, the next debate can open up, which is when will Fred Taylor be put in the Hall of Fame? And Pete Prisco will be fighting and leading that charge alongside all the other media members who pull for the the small but mighty Jaguars in terms of the representation and the history of professional football, especially when you consider what Fred Taylor did compared to some other guys that are in the Hall of Fame and how he hasn't even been a finalist just yet. So that will be the next discussion that we'll have to uh, keep tabs on. I give Pete credit because right after the announcement that Tony was in on NFL honors, uh, the week of the Super Bowl, his first tweet was, Hey, that's great. He's in let's get Fred in next. (laughs) So he's already pounding the table. He did. Don't underestimate what Pete did over the years to get in that committee's ear and, and be on those selectors. He knows them more better than anybody really. Uh, all those people and and he's not on the committee he probably could be if he kind of pushed for a spot but I think he's better suited and I think he would say this too he can't chirp at him as much when he's on the committee like so if he's not on the committee that's when you can go you know get in people's ear and do the whole thing Fred's deserving running backs you know the yardage he put up 
his knock will be he only went to one Pro Bowl and it was late in his career, never won a big one. Um, so that's going to be the knock on Fred, but he's got all the accolades to go, you know, everything else, the yardage, the statistics to go kind of match up with almost anyone. Running back's tough, right? There's still a couple guys playing now that will get some consideration whenever they retire, uh, or at least they were playing the last year or two, Frank Gore and uh, Adrian Peterson, right? So they're automatic slam dunks whenever they retire or stop playing for five years. I think they're first ballot guys. So does it happen before that? I don't know. That's going to be a tough one. That'll be a little tougher, I think, than even Tony's was tough, yes, but uh, running back is is a tough one to crack because there's so, so many good ones that have had uh, many more accolades, let's say, than Fred. Um, accolades aren't everything, though. I mean, if you're a great player, and he certainly was for a franchise in its early years on a big stage in some of those years, he'll, he'll get – I think he'll get to the finals at some point. I don't know if it'll be next year or the year after, but at some point I think he'll stay in the conversation. We have to knock on wood for good old Fred Taylor as he, like you said, accolades aren't everything. And Fred Taylor did a phenomenal job helping the Jaguars be just exist on the map in the NFL. They were a team that people doubted just like the Carolina Panthers when they were inaugurated into the NFL in 1995. And after one struggling season and then the magical run strung together four seasons in a row from 96 to 2000 and, and we've been looking to recapture that magic ever since. So it will definitely be something that the Jaguars will want to keep an eye on as far as it comes to Pro Football Hall of Fame. Now, JP, we are getting towards the end of our time on today's episode. So I'll ask you a few wrap-up questions to have a little bit more fun before we part for today. Whatever you want, man. I'm, I'm wide open. Let's do it. <laughs> what is your favorite memory from your time in college? Oh, well, that I remember um, that you remember. Oh, that, or I can tell on the air. No. Um, well, I went to Alabama, right? So I was there. Let's see. I, I got there in 2000 and I graduated in 04. And I, I, there's a lot of great ones. Obviously I was fortunate enough to be around a lot of the sports programs doing student radio back then. And you know, and I'll kind of go to that. I think this is a good forum for that. There were a lot of other things, extracurricular, let's say, but you know, we don't need to share many of those, but I was the first announcer for the Alabama softball team. So uh, Alabama softball has now become a juggernaut. They've got 3,800 season ticket holders and they're putting 4,500 people in the seats every game. And they're going to the world series all the time. Well, this is 2000 one, two, and three, a student radio station decided to pick up a few different sports, right? The the Olympic sports, right? Volleyball and um, soccer and, and softball. And so I was not handed, but I got the softball beat, for lack of a better term. We ended up covering every softball game for three years. And um, the 03 season went to the World Series in Oklahoma City. And they got run out of the place. They got beat twice and, and sent home. It was a two and out then. It's a different format now. But being around that organization, uh, when it was kind of young, they had been to one World Series a few years earlier. They had one Olympian, and they had not really kind of built. They were still building it. Like Patrick Murphy's still the coach now, but he was the young coach building it, trying to you know get the SEC softball going. And they did it. But I was kind of there in the infancy, uh, infancy of that. And that was fun. Um, that was a lot of fun, actually. And um, so that, that's, that's probably my best memory, man. The, the, being at the World Series in Oklahoma City with the softball team, of all things. Because uh, the football team was terrible. I mean, we had four, four coaches in four years when I was in college. So uh, being around that group and, and seeing it now, from knowing when it kind of was starting in the first five, six years of the program. That's, that's pretty cool. Yeah. The football team was definitely not great when you were there. And no. uh, I guess the fortunes have changed just a little bit for them ever since a little bit. Yes. Um, yes. That is uh, a totally different world in Tuscaloosa. <laughs> what in your opinion is the greatest football movie of all time? 
greatest football movie of all time. Oh boy. Um, you know, um, longest yard, the original. That's just, that's that's it. I mean, Burt Reynolds, man. Let's go. Not really much of a debate there. That's uh, that's a pretty legendary movie. It may not show too much your age, but that was a, a really really good one. That uh, people definitely need to still remember to this day. No doubt. And that, now they remade it a few years ago with Adam Sandler, but mm-hmm. um, the original is it's a classic. If the Jag- if Jacksonville was to get an MLB team, what do you think the most appropriate name would be? Oh, the Suns. Come on. I mean, so, all right. So the history here is it's always been a minor league baseball town. They've had uh, different iterations. They had the Indians back in the 40s and 50s and, like, the South Atlantic League and then – uh, they had AAA baseball for a number of years. That was the original Jacksonville Suns in the 60s, right? And they were a Mets affiliate. Uh, Nolan Ryan came through here when he was a, a prospect. Tug McGraw was a Mets prospect. This is in the 60s, a long time ago. Then they had a year away without baseball. The team moved somewhere else, I think to Norfolk, Virginia. And in 69, they didn't have baseball in Jacksonville at all, no pro baseball. 1970, they uh, – brought a double a baseball team here and named it the suns again so it was the jacksonville suns from 1970 all the way until just a few years ago when the new ownership bought it changed the name to the jumbo shrimp and just recently a couple years ago they moved to a triple a team again uh so because the baseball changed the the major leagues bought the minor leagues own everything now so the schedule's different the the leagues are it's different than when i was there but it's the jumbo shrimp over across the street now. So I, if there was going to be an MLB team here, I'd go back to the Suns. That's the name. You're the Suns. That's the that was the way it was for 40 years here. So um, I was fortunate to spend five years in that ballpark as the Suns announcer, and uh, so I'm I'm I kind of lean towards that name um, just because we had some success, and I, it was where I kind of cut my teeth and professionally and. Um, I like the new name though. I get why they did it. I don't mind it. It's fine. A lot of people hate it. I, I hate. I don't hate many things, and uh, a name change is not not one of those. So it's fine. Um, but it, to answer your question, the Suns, Jacksonville Suns, would be the MLB team name. I think I never realized how big baseball is in Jacksonville. And to be honest, I mean, if the MLB looked to expanding again, like I think they would have to seriously consider Jacksonville because of how yeah. popular. It is. You know, I, the sport is popular. The population is not big. That's the thing. And if you're going to support, what, 81 home games a year and compete with other big market teams who are spending all this money, like the L.A. Dodgers and the New York Yankees and the Mets and all these teams that are – got to find that money somewhere. And it's you – know, yes, the city's growing, uh, but it is a crowded – it's not a huge marketplace in terms of sports teams, right? There's not a lot of big corporate support here. There are some major sponsors and things, but you start bringing in different franchises and things. It's, it's, it's going to be tough. So I, I I'm with you. It's a good baseball town. The grassroots baseball is very good here. There are a lot of major league players that come out of this place. A lot of people watch baseball here, I think, but in terms of supporting it over and over and over again, I, you know, that's going to be a tough one, in my opinion. That's a fair point. And yeah, the city of Jacksonville is needs that population to support an MLB franchise. I mean, mind you, the Tampa Bay Rays have uh, a few issues with attendance, but no matter, it doesn't stop them from, you know, owning their division and running all the way to the World Series as the, the little engines that could every once in a while. So if they can do it, then, you know, maybe there's a potential on the horizon, but I think we would have to see a a lot more growth first before that happens. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. And then Tampa's different. That's a different marketplace, much bigger. I mean, they're a top 20 market in the U S that's, we've got a lot of population down there. Their stadium's terrible, but they're apparently working on the stadium issue. Um, Again, I've been out of baseball for 10 years. I, I just read what I read. That's it. My final question for you is this. If you had the opportunity to visit any Canadian city besides Toronto or Vancouver, where would you go and what would you want to do? I actually have a little experience in Canada. 
Um, and I've never been to Toronto and I've never been to Vancouver. Uh, when I worked in Sioux Falls, South Dakota in baseball, this was in 2005, I worked in an in, independent league team called the Sioux Falls Canaries. They were in the Northern League at the time. That league had the, um, I'm going to get the name of the teams wrong because it's been so long. But Calgary had a team. The uh, Edmonton Cracker Cats were there. The Winnipeg Gold Eyes are still playing. They're right there in the middle. Um, so we used to go. We went to two road trips um, in Edmonton and Calgary. We would fly out there, play a series, bust down, play another series, and then fly home, right? And I loved it. I mean, it was middle of summer in Calgary is much better than January in Calgary, if you can, you know that. So um, it was very nice in, in June and July. Uh, Canadian Rockies out past right field and Calgary and downtown's great. Edmonton was had a casino and some things down there. And um, and then Winnipeg was my favorite. I, I abs because you could bus right up the road, straight up the interstate. And in about six hours, you're in Winnipeg. And I loved it. The ballpark was packed every single night. It was sold out. And it has been for years. They love it for some reason there. Well, they do a good job of promoting it. They've got the, they didn't have, they didn't have NHL at the time. They, they've got it back now. Uh, but they had the Manitoba Moose was like an AHL team and they had the Gold Eyes and it, it was incredible. Like on a Tuesday night, there's 8,000 people in the ballpark. What is going on here? But it's fantastic. They did a fantastic job there in the city. You stayed right downtown, could walk to Earl's, the restaurant that's right over there. And then you like walk to the ballpark. They had a horrible mosquito problem. I remember that. Like it was the worst mosquito infestation. It was like top of the fold newspaper mosquito counts. There's trucks with spraying. I mean, you'd walk down the tunnel to the dugout. You could see them like flying in the sunlight. Like they're everywhere. It was right on the river right there. Um, and then a couple of years ago, I vacationed for a few days in Montreal, which was another great place. Uh, so, yeah, I love that. So, I haven't been back to Winnipeg. I'd go back there in a heartbeat. I mean, I, I love the, the, you know, I was only there for four days of pop, but you know, why not? Your memory serves you well. And I don't know if we had dove into too much detail about where my hometown is located in the heart oh. of the continent, Winnipeg, Manitoba. You're in Winnipeg. I didn't know that. I'm from Winnipeg. So everything you were just describing, I, that's why my grin was popping off yeah. my face. Shaw Park. Earl's on Main Street that's actually moved within the last, like, I think it's moved today. Today is when the Earl's is opening their new location for the first time in a long time. Uh, Sam Cates, the mayor, was the owner. The man of still is. Moves. He's the owner and chairman. Yes. Yeah. He, he was the mayor of Winnipeg at the time. He's not anymore, but involved with the gold eyes. And I was even talking about this with a friend today. Who, we're here and I live in Toronto right now for, for school. And a friend of mine sitting next to me is a big baseball fan. And I was asking him, oh, do they have minor league teams in Toronto? Because in Winnipeg, we love the gold eyes, even though, yeah, there's no MLB team that's going to come and play in Winnipeg. But the gold eyes have been a very unique staple of the city. And it's, uh, it's really interesting to hear that you said that Winnipeg is your favorite place to be because a lot of people like to make fun of Winnipeg. I would have never known what was there unless I went on a baseball trip. And like, so they, on the first baseline of that ballpark, they had this place called Who's on First, H U apostrophe S on First. It was like an Asian restaurant. It was, it was fantastic. And it overlooked the ballpark and it was open like all hours, not all hours, but like lunch, you could go in there, like normal people could come in, like the civilians, all that. It was great. And then, um, Earl's was the post-game spot. That was the place to be. Um, and then, yeah, I, it was just great. I mean, the whole thing was was beautiful. And, um, you know, Paul Edmonds was the broadcaster for the Winnipeg Gold Eyes for a long time. And then the Jets came back to town, and he's still the voice of the Winnipeg Jets. And I haven't talked to him in years. Uh, we're linked in on, on social media and all that stuff. But he's – so I follow his career since then. But he was – he was there for so long and a very, very good baseball broadcaster. I need to listen to him more on hockey. I'm sure he's fantastic there, too. Oh, Paul Edmonds has been phenomenal with the Jets. And as soon as the team came back to town, you best believe that there was a parade and that everything stopped. It was it was amazing. And growing up, my generation, I was born in 96. So literally two weeks before the Jets lost game six against the Red Wings. And then that was it. They left and and uh, the Winnipeg arena was demolished and they built the MTS center for the moose. And then the jets came back. The moose went to St. John's 
They eventually came back. So the Moose and the Jets now both reside at Canada Life Center on Portage and Donald in downtown Winnipeg. So hockey is back and alive as ever right. in Winnipeg. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't remember the name of the main street, but Portage is the main drag there. That's right. And it's, it's hilarious. Like we did not talk about this beforehand. I had no idea. I knew you were from Canada, but I didn't know like where in Canada. It's a, such a coincidence. We're just talking about it. It's so funny, man. Uh, that's why I said, I was like, Oh, I wonder, it's always interesting to hear what experiences people from Jacksonville or thoughts they have of, of Canada. And every time that I say I'm from Winnipeg, people say, I don't know where that is. Or if you say someone famous, or if you say, well, just drive an hour North of Fargo and you'll get there, you know, or two yeah. hours North and you'll get to, to Winnipeg. But yeah, the Winnipeg gold eyes are, they're still alive and kicking. And uh, one of the great, Great summer attractions, obviously, besides the, the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, who have uh, their fortunes have changed for, for the best, uh, probably since the last time that you were down there. They were uh, not so great in the uh, mid to mid 2000s. But uh, yeah, Winnipeg is, is the place to be, especially uh, the funniest thing I will say is the comparison that I, the comparisons I noticed between Jacksonville and Winnipeg when I went down to watch the Jaguars play the Colts in 2018. Seems so uncanny. The team that has a beloved fan base, despite the fact that it's a smaller city, the fact that they've had great history in the past and are looking to recapture that. Just the overall, like the two rivers that cross through the middle of the city. You got bridges around downtown. You got the people that are very friendly and super kind. It just the popular baseball that seems quirky, but is has such a loyal fan base. Maybe the weather isn't the same, but that's probably about the only thing that I noticed when I was there for for my weekend trip. It's pretty good, yeah. That's a pretty good comparison, man. I I uh, I really thought about it like that, but it is it is kind of close of all things. Um, and, and you're right about the people in, in Winnipeg; they were just gracious, really, really nice folks. And um, I, I I do need to get back out there for sure. Well, the next time you go to Winnipeg, let me know, and I'll make sure to show you around town and to many of the new great spots that have popped up since the last time that you were down in the, the heart of the continent, or I guess we'll up go, in the heart of the continent. We'll go to the New Earls and get a Coconi Gold, right? I remember <laughs> that was on tap with the old one. I, I, I was like, oh, this Canadian beer is fantastic. Absolutely. And JP, I want to thank you for having been on today's episode. It was really awesome getting to chat Jaguars football with you and uncover your Secret love for one of the best Canadian cities right in the center of the country in Winnipeg. I'm really glad that, that we touched on that because that would have been unfortunate to miss out on if I would have known after the fact. Hey, that's what interviews are for, man. You find out a lot of things if you just ask some questions. But uh, it's great to be with you. Thanks for asking. And uh, let's do it again soon. Absolutely. And thank you to listener for enjoying today's episode with Jaguars senior reporter, J.P. Shadrick. First and goal from the one. This is it. Stegall. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Huddle Up with Matias Bueno. Check out our social media pages for more at huddleup underscore MB. For full audio, head over to Spotify and Apple Podcasts. For full video, head over to YouTube at Huddle Up with Matias Bueno. Tune in next week for another great episode. See you next time.